If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open them with me, I'll be in Matthew chapter 1 today. Matthew chapter 1 today as we start a new series. So, the first song we sang invited us to come and worship. And it said, just as you are. Come just as you are. And that makes me kind of think to ask, so how are you? As I've talked to some of you and others in the neighborhood, seems like a lot of people, if I ask them, how are you? A lot of people are mad. Mad. I can't remember a time when more people were mad than they are right now. A lot of people are mad. Are you mad? What do you think makes other people mad? And if you're mad, why are you mad? A lot of people are mad. Other people, they've, they've really they've kind of lost their sense of purpose and really become puddles. You know, they just, just kind of lost their motivation, lost their drive, lost their why. And they just kind of melted into a puddle because the world keeps changing and they don't know what they're supposed to do or why they're here or where they're going anymore. And it's just like they've just kind of given up. You lost your purpose? Other people, it seems like they're on the hamster wheel of worry. And... They watch the news all day long, and there's a lot of stuff to worry about on the news. And they try to, I think they, in some ways, try to control things by knowing about them, and they watch the news and watch the news, and they worry, 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 all day long, and they're just exhausted. Exhausted from worry. Worry worn. How are you doing, though? If you find yourself up here, I mean, if you find yourself mad, like, I, I don't know, I have this general tightness of my, in my chest, this just general, that I walk around with, or you find yourself just like in puddle mode, or you find yourself worry-worn, like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's truth here that you can anchor your soul to. Before we read that, let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would stand in front of me while I'm in front of them, that you would talk over me while I talk to them. Lord, do this for your glory's sake, for our sake, for the good of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is like the manifesto that begins the entire New Testament, especially the book of Matthew. And Matthew's point, I'm just going to tell you right now, Matthew's point is that Jesus is king, or Jesus is the Christ. You'll see this 
in purple a couple times. You could probably guess why we chose the color purple to say he is the king. Okay, this is a manifesto saying Jesus is king. And I'm going to talk about how that is the answer to our worry, how that's part of the answer to our not having a purpose. And that's part of the answer to us being afraid. Jesus is king. Okay, so the book of the genealogy of Jesus the king, or Jesus the Messiah, the long-anointed, the long-awaited anointed one. The son of, who's that guy? David. Well, we've, it all looks kind of familiar. We've been learning about him for six months or so leading up to this series. The son of David. He is the rightful king. He stands in David's line He is the rightful king. He is, in fact, the son of Abraham. He is is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham. God made Abraham a promise. I'm going to make of you a people. And through that people, I will bless the whole world. And Jesus is that promise coming true. Now, As we read this, I'm going to have numbers up there. Here's why I'm going to have numbers up there. So if you look at, I'm just going to, we're just going to look ahead. We're going to kind of cheat and I'm going to show you my cards and you can see them. I'm just going to just show you here. Look at verse 17 with me. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. How many are there? Okay, we're going to count just to check. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, how many generations from David to the deportation to Babylon? Fourteen. We're going to count. And from the deportation to Babylon to the king or to the Christ, how many? Fourteen. We're going to count. Okay, so here we go. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. So you'll notice there's a pattern. I try to set this up so you can see the pattern. You see the pattern? It's always the dad and then the father of the son. You'll see some exceptions in the pattern. When you see exceptions, that should be like, hey, wake up. There's an exception. This is important. So one of the exceptions is it lists Judah's brothers. It doesn't name them, but it says he had brothers. Well, that's because Judah is part of the 12 tribes. But here's the first really big, like, hey, hey, look at me, exception. By, uh, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Man, if you know your Bible, you know that's a rated R story. You know that Tamar was used and abused. She was married to this evil man that God put to death. And then his brother had to marry her, kind of. It's like this leveret marriage thing that's taken a long time. He, He was evil, too, to her. God put him to death. She gets in a spot where she makes a desperate choice. And here she is. And Matthew's like, hey. Hey, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, 
and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by... Oh, that's another, like, breaks the pattern, right? There's the pattern, and here's another, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Think about this. By Rahab. Rahab, Rahab did stuff that gets you labeled. In fact, that label is used three times in the book of Joshua, once in the book of James, and again in the book of Hebrews. And Matthew wants you to know, hey, hey, Rahab is in the line of Christ. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by By Ruth, a widowed immigrant, a Moabite of all nationalities to them. They would have said, no, Moabite? Are you kidding me? And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Okay, remember verse 17? What do we read? So all the generations from Abraham to David were how many? Fourteen. Are we on track? Yes, we're on track. And David was the father of Solomon. Okay, so we're starting the next group of how many? Fourteen. And David was the father of Solomon by... Oh, that was a scandal that we're still talking about. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. The deportation to Babylon is what we studied when we did Dark Cloud's Deep Mercy and we looked especially at the book of Lamentations back last year, last January. How many from David to the deportation? 14, just like we saw in verse 17. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel. Shetiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiah the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zodak, Zodak the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph. Now, does it say father of Jesus? No, what does it say? The husband of Mary. They want you to know that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. They want you to know that Jesus is Joseph's adopted son. That Jesus is in fact the son of God. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Hey, are there any more names up here? Okay, well, let's 
let's finish this because maybe, maybe something's going on. But I just want to remind you, before we get caught up in the numbers, what the point of this is. The point is of this whole list of names is to show that Jesus is the rightful king. He stands in the line of kings. All of history to that point had been building to him. He is the long-awaited Christ. You'll see that again at the end of verse 17. So what does it say? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, remember that's the point. Jesus is the long-awaited king. How many generations? 13, right? That's what it says. 14 generations. But you only counted 13 names. And I didn't leave one out. I checked a bunch of times. So what's going on? Well, commentators argue about this. If you read five different commentaries about this, you'll come up with eight different opinions. What's going on? I mean, we have to talk about this because Matthew points this out. He's like, 14, 14, 14. And you read it and you go, well, there's not 14. Not in the last one. So here's a pro tip. I'm just going to give you this for free. This is a pro tip, not related to the sermon. Because I know a bunch of you are going to go home and be like, there's 14. And you're going to number them in your Bible. Don't do that. Not the first time. Print it out the first time. So you don't have to cross things off and then redo it in your Bible. I'm telling you from experience. I have Bibles that I look at and I go, oh, I can't even look at that because I had to cross things out and then renumber them. Well, here's the first thing. Jesus comes at the end of the six, seven. Jesus begins, launches the seventh seven. It would be a sign of completion, like something new is happening. And this is what Matthew is signaling. All of history has been building to this point, and Jesus is launching something new. But, but why the 13 rather than the 14? The best explanation I can, I've come across is here from D.A. Carson. And he writes that, And if the third set of 14 is one is short one member, like he's saying, well, maybe David should be counted twice. You know, like, there's, like I said, there's a whole bunch of different opinions about that. And if the third set of 14 is short one member, perhaps it will suggest to some readers that, Just as God cut short the time of distress for the sake of the elect. This is what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24, 22. That God cut short the time for the sake of the elect. Maybe. So also he mercifully shortens the period from the exile to Jesus the Messiah. See, here's the thing. Jesus is the king. This is what this is saying so clearly is that Jesus is king. And that he is the fulfillment of history. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for all along. And so, 
It could be, what D.A. Carson is saying, is it could be that God cut that time short out of his, out of his mercy for us. But what, what we know for sure is that this list of names, this genealogy, is a manifesto saying Jesus is king. This is why in the next verse, in verse 18, you see now the birth of Jesus Christ. You see Christ again and again and again throughout this passage. And I just want you to know that this is the trajectory of the book, that Jesus came to fulfill all the promises to Abraham. That one day, this is what I mentioned in the beginning, that one day God would make that nation a blessing to all the peoples. And indeed, that is what we see, that Jesus is the long-awaited king that would bless the nations. So is, if, you have, if you have your Bibles open and you're looking at them, in Matthew chapter 2, who comes to visit? Wise men from the where? East, long ways away. They made a long, long, long journey. Because Jesus is the king that will bless the nations. This is a trajectory that goes throughout the book of Matthew. And if you want to turn all the way to the end of the book with me, almost to the end, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. You have the wise men coming from the east. Long, long journey. Looking for the king. Then at the climax of the book, when Jesus is dying on the cross for our sins... All the way almost to the end of 27, in verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So you have in the beginning of the book, wise men from the east looking for the king. You have the centurion from the west in Rome proclaiming, this is the king. He's the king for everybody. He's everybody's king. And this is to bless the world. This is what we see at the very end of the book. So if you turn your page to Matthew chapter 28, and you see resurrected Jesus, he says in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He is king. So what this means for you and I is that because he is king, What we do, what we point our lives at, is following him and missionally obeying him. We stay on mission as we learn to obey everything that he has commanded us. So, let's talk about being mad. Is, uh, is anger let me back up I want to talk about why we're mad sometimes there are times when we can be mad for all the right reasons there can be times when we're mad like 
short times when we're mad, when we see an injustice and we see something wrong. And that can be an anger that, that we should experience. There are other times when we're mad, when we're just mad because we are not getting our way. Is, is anger one of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, anger. When you think of Jesus, yeah, was he, did he get angry? He got angry. There are times when Jesus got angry. Do you think of him all the time, what characterized Jesus, the very heart of Jesus? Do you see him walking around? Is that your picture of Jesus that you get from the Gospels? There's a time to be angry, no doubt. There is a righteous anger, no doubt. But before you go ahead and justify your anger that is burning inside you and eating at you, before you justify that and say, well, Jesus flipped tables, yeah, once. Why don't you just ask, well, why am I angry? Am I just mad all the time because I'm not getting my way? Or am I mad for other people's sake? Am I mad because the poor are being downtrodden? Am I mad because people are being lied to? Am I mad? Like, why am I mad? Am I mad in a righteous way or am I mad in a selfish way? See, our job, the reason I talk about Jesus being king, and the reason I'm talking about this while I'm talking about how Jesus is king, is our job is to live under Jesus' reign. Like, he is king and I am not. My job is to live in Jesus' way, not my way. My job is to follow Jesus, missionally follow Jesus, not make the world conform to Nathan's image. Maybe it would be a relief if we could just stay missionally on mission, like missional obedience, have that be the focus of our lives. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus in whatever situation I am in. Have that be the focus of our lives, rather than I'm going to make the world work the way I want it to work. And I'm going to be frustrated if I can't. Maybe it would be a relief to say Jesus is king and I am not. The first, the first manifesto in this genealogy is that Jesus is the Christ, that he is king. That's why it's in here three times. Once in the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Once near the end in verse 16, Jesus who is called Christ. And then once at the very end, to the Christ, 14 generations. First thing is Jesus is king. The second thing that we need to know as we look at the trajectory of the book, so we're trying to like, set the table for the rest of the time we'll be in Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew for eight, nine weeks or so. And then we'll do something else and we'll come back to Matthew again next year if all goes according to plan. Which I could be mad and frustrated that things never go according to plan, couldn't I? No matter how much I plan. 
Jesus is the king, though. This is like setting the table for the book. This is what the book proclaims again and again. So you see this theme build and build and build as Jesus teaches about the kingdom. What it means for him to be king is that he has a kingdom. And he's the king and he's returning. And he'll call his servants to account. You know, like that's a theme that builds and builds and builds throughout the book. And it builds to the point where he is on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And so you'll see this theme of Jesus being king. If you read Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 56, I think, when Jesus goes before the high priest, it's real close in there, like right at the end of of 26, through the end of 27, when he dies, you will see him called Christ four times. He's called the Messianic King four times in that final hours of his life. He's called King of Israel or King of the Jews three times during those final hours of his life. He's called the Son of God four times during that final hour. This is all in one chapter. This is the theme that he is the kind of king that gives his life for his people. He is the kind of king that dies in their place. He is the kind of king that saves us from our sins. Indeed, when we read the names of the four women that we read earlier, that we pointed out in the genealogy, by Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, by Bathsheba, when we, when we read those names, we just know it is a sinful world. And it is good news that Jesus came to die for our sins. And the point is that you can be forgiven. Think of that. The king of all the universe. The long-awaited king. The Messiah that the entire Old Testament had built towards and built towards and built towards and built towards for generation upon generation upon generation. He shows up And dies for our sins. So that, so that you and I can be utterly, completely, totally, all the way to ten, forgiven. He saves us from our sins. But the point is not only that we can be saved from our sins. I don't want to take away from that at all. We can be saved from our sins. And that is something just to camp on. And that means forgiven. It also means you don't have to stay in your sins. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about we lose our sense of purpose because we forget this. So if you think of the end of the book, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go to all the nations and make disciples disciples, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Here's the, here's the really good news. You're forgiven and you don't have to keep doing that stuff. You're forgiven and you get to go free. You're forgiven and you can change. You can change as you learn to obey everything that he's taught you. And so, as you know, we read about Stuff that happened to Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. 
And desperate choices Tamar made back in Genesis chapter 38. What we'd say is, Tamar, Tamar, you can be forgiven. And you can learn a better way. Rahab, you can be forgiven. All of that past can be in the past. And you can learn a better way. And say to you, all of the past can be in the past. And you can be forgiven. And you can learn a better way. This is what keeps us on mission. We have a mission that changes people's eternities for good. We have a mission where people's lives change for good. We can't become puddles. We can't just sit and lose our purpose and wander around and do nothing. We can't melt because the world keeps changing. Yes, the world keeps changing. And that means we have new opportunities to be on mission. And to take Jesus' message to the nations. Jesus is king. And Jesus saves us from our sins. And this is one thing that we, we just can't leave this text without saying. And Jesus uses it all for good. As you think of the insipid mess that is represented in life after life of this genealogy, as you think of the smoking rubble that was the exile that we studied when we studied Lamentations together, as you think of the, the smoking rubble of ruined lives, you think of the insipid mess that some of these ladies lived through, the messes that were inflicted on them by the men in their lives. God uses Every inch of it for good. I don't want to run past that. Because sometimes that's cliche. And we, it kind of loses its meaning and loses its power when we run past it. Think of... I mean, those of you that know the story of Tamar... God used every inch of the, He redeemed it for good. He took her pain and her mess, and she is in the line of Christ. Think of, think of Rahab, who was labeled. God took her mess and redeemed it for good. And she is in the line of Christ. Think of Bathsheba and all the scandal around that. God took all of that and she is in the line of Christ. And this is not something that you can see in the moment, of course. I mean, in the moment, all you can see is darkness and pain and suffering and what on earth is going on. But this is why we study scripture, because when we look at the long trajectory of history, we can see that God uses all of it for good. So the first gift I have for you this week as we doing five five Christmas gifts over the next 
four weeks. The first gift I have for you is the gift of God's providence. That God is in charge. Utterly, all the way to ten, God is in charge. And so when we, when we could be burned up with anger over how frustrating life is, we can learn to say, your will be done. We can learn to stay on mission and live in obedience to Christ. Because we know that he is good and he is in charge. He is utterly in charge. When we're tempted to become a puddle because the world keeps changing and we don't know what to do, we can remember who's in charge and we can stay on mission. That We have a mission where lives are actually changed, where eternities are actually changed for good because God reigns. Goes back to that idea. God is in charge. When, when we're tempted to give ourselves over completely to worry and be worry-worn and just exhausted from worrying about how the world is going to change, how it has changed, how it's going to change in the future, what's going to happen next, we can just come back to God reigns. And this is why in the list of names and all the stuff that is involved in this long list of names, we're reminded. We're reminded that God is in charge. And that he is working quietly. He doesn't always announce himself and say, Hey, look what I'm doing. That, that's not how God does things. He, not very often. Usually he's just quietly working behind the scenes. But he is working quietly and he's working competently to bring about his ends. He's good at what he does. And he's working consistently. It's not like he lost track of this line someplace and then had to restart. You have a God that is in charge and that is good. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came and that you died. And that you rose, and that you were in charge of all of it. Help us trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.